Hello and welcome to another edition of Nutshell, where we highlight some of the interviews we featured on Biz News in the past week. Well, the RAND received another hiding after Moody's warned that ESCOM needs to urgently come up with a restructuring plan. You needed more than 15 RAND to buy a dollar. Mining shares glittered as gold again became the safe haven amid global uncertainty. Under all this, the political cauldron has been bubbling. If it hasn't, we are probably in the wrong country. Under the spotlight this week was Peter de Toy's book. His book provides interesting insight into the Stellenbosch Mafia billionaires, a name given to them by the EFF's Julius Malema. Peter gave Alec Hogg more information about his interview with Johan Rupert and the whereabouts of the lesser-spotted Marcus Joester, the former Steinoff CEO. Johan Rupert's a, a, quite an enigmatic figure. But the disinformation campaign, which, which, which started in 2016-2017, with Bal Pottinger, with the help of Duduzane Zuma, uh, to try and draw away fire from state capture and uh, Jacob Zuma then and, and, and what was going on, uh, found, you know, Rupert was a very easy target, uh, a white businessman from Stellenbosch, you know, and, and he was he was cast as in, in the role of the ultimate capitalist villain, you know, the guy that was sucking the country dry, the guy that was in actual control of, of government, you know, who was trying to manipulate government, who was controlling the media. And David Shapiro is right, you know, when, when the term Stellenbosch Mafia first came into into use, it was in a term of endearment almost, you know, it was a fun way to describe this bunch of Stellenbosch businessmen who really came good, like Yanni Maton. And and I think he what Johan Rupert was, you know, he was convinced to do the Power of Him interview because he has some concerns about his legacy. And if you look at the demographic of Power of Him, it's a it's a it's it's the it's the young up and coming black middle class uh, inclined to be to be uh, receptive to the EFF's message, which is a, which is a weird phenomenon. But that's the that's the demographic that he was speaking to. Um, and he, the, the purpose of that interview was to try and recover some of the lost ground, you know, trying to repair the damage to his name. Because I think he, he, he desperately wants to be seen as a, a loyal South African, uh, uh, you know, someone that has certainly, you know, the country's interest at heart, but also someone that wants to, to be accepted by the broader black business and political elite. But it was an abject disaster, and, and, and you know, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First, I think, I think the, the, you know, him and his team were a little bit out of touch with the demographic, with the people that they were going to speak to, um, and I think he was ill prepared to to do an interview of that that magnitude. It, it was quite a, it was a big evening, you know, it was a big hall in Sutton. Uh Almost 500 people, I think, were there in attendance. It was it was broadcast live on ENCA and 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 and, and Barrett. And it was bold, you know, in his circles as an attempt to try and uh, resuscitate his image. Um, and unfortunately, what it did was it just it just confirmed some of the caricatures that that was created of him by by damaging but very successful, ultimately, the Pottinger campaign, which which is making a comeback, incidentally. Alec, it's, it's making a very strong comeback. The point that you made there as well was that they seem to draw on the Hoggenheimer kind of uh, yes. uh, approach of the National Party many years ago. Yes, and, and, and uh, that was quite interesting. If you look back at the, at the, at the rise of Afrikaner capitalism, or capitalists, you know, the rise of the Afrikaner business class, um, uh, Afrikaners initially were quite 
uh, <clears throat> averse to the system of capitalism. Uh, you know, they were they were drawn to a sort of a collectivism. Um, you know, and 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 that's where the socialists in the early 30s thought, you know, Afrikaners might be right for the picking because they they aren't buying into this uh, the, the the capitalist system still dominated back then, dominated by English-speaking South Africans and, and, and Jewish-speaking South Africans. And the Burger, the, the biggest mouthpiece uh, of, of, of Afrikaner nationalism of its day, created a character called Hochenheimer, which was this uh, uh, a, 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 a figurative Jewish business person with a, with, a, with a bent nose and a bent back, you know, who was just uh, trying to steal as much money from unsuspecting Bura as, as, uh, as they could. And, and, and this same tactic was used on Rupert by Bell Pottinger, by the ANC, by Black First Lancers, by the EFF. Um, and it's been difficult to change that narrative for Rupert. And, you know, the, my book certainly wasn't uh, a hagiography trying to, <laughs> trying to uh, rehabilitate Rupert's image. But yeah. what, it, what I wanted to do was to try and put you on Rupert into perspective. Um, you know, and, and that was, that, you know, the, the part that deals with Rupert in the book. It's trying to uh, obviously humanize him because I think it's interesting for people to, to understand uh, their subjects better if they can relate to him. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was, I, was, I was fortunate to interview him twice at his house. He was very generous with his time. Um, and we spoke about all manner of things. And, you know, the, the relationship that I saw on those two occasions between him and some of his uh, staff and workers, for example, uh, you know, led me to believe that he's got a, he's, you know, he's, he's, the people that work for him are very loyal to him. Yeah, and you see that with the Rembrandt group. But uh, really my question, and it's very clear, he spoke freely to you, but you also wrote freely about what he said. This is by no means uh, a something that perhaps he would have written. I'm wondering if Rupert, <laughs> how he feels about the book, having read stuff in there, which I'm pretty sure he would he would much have preferred not to have been in. Are you? Can you still get through to him? I, I, I can't. I can't, Alec. Uh, I can't. Um, we, we 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 had quite a, a, a cordial and a, and a, and a, uh, you know warm relationship for for almost five or six years. I think you know he's a he's a he's a, he's a fantastic. Uh, uh, Interlocutor, you know, he's, he's, he's an interesting guy to speak to. He's got, uh, you know, he has fantastic uh, access across the world, which 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 makes him interesting, which which gives him very good insight into all manner of affairs. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I think there's there's uh, you know he's uh, he, uh, you know I, I, I engaged with him before the publish before the book was published to tell him look this is this is what the book says and this is what my this is what I say and I, I'd like to engage with you on it. Um, he, he didn't. He opted not to do it, and we haven't had contact since, which 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 is unfortunate because I, I, I you know I tried to write an honest appraisal of him. And um, look, and and you know wherever I go, you know I tell people that you know last night at the book launch at Hyde Park, for example, um, uh, I was asked by a, a black member of the audience, uh, "Is Johan Rupert and the rest of the so-called Stellenbosch Mafia are they loyal South Africans?" And I, you know, we're clear conscience could say, you know, they are very loyal to the country. They want the country to succeed and they are very committed to the democratic project. And I think that's the big thing that the Bell Pottinger campaign tried to try to, uh, to 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 get across was that these people ain't in it for the money, they don't care about the country, they don't care about the South Africans of um, all walks of life. And I don't think that's true. Uh, and I and I think this book uh, tried to put that into perspective. But no, we haven't had contact since uh, I hope to re-establish contact some, somewhere in the future. <laughs> you know, we'll be happy to have a chat to him as well.
I, I love the piece, the, the, the quote, and I just want to read it back to you. With great wealth comes great distance from ordinary life. And that does appear to be the situation uh, with Johan Rupert, as, as you mm-hmm. described there. But someone who did love the money or seemed to love the money above all else and was prepared to crook and lie and cheat about it was Marcus Joester. W- what's he up mm-hmm. to now? He, he is well covered in your book, but wh- wh- what's he up to? I'm not exactly sure where he is at the moment. I mean, uh, as far as I understand, you know, he's sometimes seen out and about in Stellenbosch. I know for a fact that, you know, he, he's attended some very raucous parties in Stellenbosch and out on the West Coast. Um, he's been spotted at the Tiger waterfront in Balville. He's been spotted at the waterfront in Cape Town. Uh, you know, I, I know from, uh, you know, sometimes people tell me from Hermanus that they've seen him dining at a, at a restaurant. So he seems to be out and about. And he, uh, we, we know that he's involved in a number of, of court cases at the moment. Also featured on Biz News this week were the two Pauls, who are like pit bulls when they get their teeth into an issue, forensic investigator Paul O'Sullivan, who's going after companies who did deals with the state capturers, and Paul Hoffman from Accountability Now, who is trying to hold public protector Busi Mkwebani to account. O'Sullivan had global law firm Hogan Lovells in his scope. He has the support of the United Kingdom's Lord Peter Hain. What we have over here, apart from KPMG, who actually came clean, well, sort of came clean, you know, their version of coming clean, uh, the rest of the entities we've attacked, which is Bain, um, McKinsey's, Hogan Lovells, they've all put their head in the sand and they've claimed total ignorance or they've even retaliated by saying, we don't know what we're talking about. I think in the case of Peter, they accuse him of talking hogwash. <laughs> so um, we, we say, well, you know, if you guys have got nothing uh, to hide, you, you should open your books to us because we know what you've been up to and we're going to punish you for it. So really, at the end of the day, they must, they must take their punishment. And we, we've made it clear we're not going to let up. As you know, um, I think that probably brings us nicely back to where we, we were going to start. Uh, Hogan Lovells um, uh, are now shutting down their big offices in Santon, which curiously they share with um, McKinsey's, who are also, you know, an apple in our eye. Now, um, McKinsey's have downsized in South Africa as well. Hogan Lovells are downsizing, and it appears to me that Lavery Medici, who in our opinion was less than transparent uh, in this whole issue, um, Lavery Medici is now taking some of his staff and taking a hike from Hogan Lovells and recommencing his, his law firm that, that became part of the Hogan Lovells partnership. But earlier in the year, their whole mining division, uh, the partner of their mining division and all the people under him took a hike as well. So I think uh, Hogan Lovells is now a shadow of its former self. And we've made it clear that, you know, we've got lots of time on our hands. And when, when it suits us, we will start attacking their client base. Paul, what exactly did Hogan Lovells do in the whole state capture saga? Our concern with Hogan Lovells was about how they were unlawfully appointed by the then Minister of Police and Nklameza, who was the unlawfully appointed head of Hawks, and that their sole function in life was to drag down the criminal justice system by going after Anwar Dramat, Shadrach Sabir, and Robert McBride, and others, 
Now, we work together with the Helen Sussman Foundation, and they launched applications to set aside the appointment of Implemeza. And they used um, the pro bono department of Weber Vensel. And they put a fairly solid case together, and of course they won. And Hogan Lovells, who were paid millions and millions of rand, took it on appeal to the appeal court, lost again, and then took it on appeal to the Constitutional Court. So we're saying they knew at all material times that they were going to lose, but it wasn't about winning or losing. It was about playing for time. And they assisted those that were the architects of state capture, particularly the capture of the criminal justice system. They assisted them to stay in power for an 18-month period longer than they would have been in power. If you look at the legislation, the Public Finance Management Act, it makes it clear that any state-owned entity that wishes to litigate has to go through the state attorney's office. And Conerza and the Minister of Police chose to bypass the state attorney's office and appoint Hogan Lovells, who completely ignored the Public Finance Management Act and made millions and millions and millions. And to this day, we don't know how many millions, but we know it's a lot. So the good news is that Hogan Lovells, as it was, is going to vanish. There will be a presence now in South Africa, but those people will be part of the London office. So if they involved in any more hanky-panky, the Solicitor's Regulation Authority will indeed um, have the jurisdiction to deal with them. When you say they're going to disappear from South Africa, they've got this huge big office there. What exactly is happening uh, to the firm? Remember, Hogan Lovells in South Africa was a partnership of Hogan Lovells in London and um, Lavery Medici's firm. Hopefully they will they will suffer because hopefully they will vanish into obscurity and certainly wherever Lavery Medici goes we will follow and we will chastise him he is not getting off the hook we're going to be like the proverbial hyena behind the kudu every time it thinks he's shaking them off and slows down ten minutes later he looks behind and we, you know we're on their tail so what do you want from them Paul? I want them to come clean I want to know how many millions they were paid of taxpayers money and I want to know the, I want them to provide us with the evidence that we can use to nail the criminals that, were, that they were protecting. The public protector received another bloody nose in court this week when Ramaphosa's urgent application to interdict Mukubani's remedial action against Minister Provan Gordon succeeded. Meanwhile, Paul Hoffman has come out with two guns blazing. This is after he has proposed to the Legal Practice Council to have Mukubani disbarred and he described her as having five fires under her. In a statement, Hoffman lamented the money wasted on fruitless litigation and said Parliament should hang its collective head in shame that they allowed the carnage that Makwabani is causing to continue. I think that the, uh, the wheels of justice are, are grinding in the uh, disciplinary corridors of the Legal Practice Council. They will look at the, uh, the judgment and, and decide whether it has the seeds of a striking off application. I believe it does. They will then give her the opportunity of putting her side of the story. And if they are satisfied that there is indeed a case, they, they will then um, apply to court for her to be struck off the role of advocates. Okay. And what's the price? How long does that take? Well, that, that could be a matter of months. Uh, uh, 
excluding appeals, obviously. It could be done by the end of the year. Okay, but you're not waiting for that. You are now following in another line as well, and uh, you've, you've put forward this week two further steps. Firstly, you've laid charges of perjury and defeating the ends of justice with the South African Police Services. Yes, those charges were accepted at the uh, Ocean View Police Station on Monday morning, and the Hawks in Pretoria are investigating. It's a very simple investigation. They need to get hold of the original affidavits from the Constitutional Court and the, uh, the judgment and place those before uh, the National Prosecuting Authority for a decision on which charges to, to proceed on. Uh, we think that perjury is the easy one. It's possible that a prosecutor will want to do perjury and defeating the ends of justice. Mm. Uh, what are the, uh, what's the sanction for that? Well, she'll go to jail. That's serious. Perjury. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly for an officer of the court to, to be involved in misleading the court and lying on oath is a, a problem that, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it goes to the root of the relationship between the court and the legal practitioner. And it's certainly an aggravating circumstance that a legal practitioner should, um, should deposed to a perjured affidavit, which is what has happened here. She she uh, falsely swore a, a, a version of the uh, of the facts which the court has rejected as false. The second issue is that you've actually laid a complaint at the public protector itself. Now, how does that work out? <laughs> the public protector's office is not actually a one-man band. It is a... a um, an office with uh, branches in all centres, a deputy, and there is absolutely no reason, if there is maladministration, for the public protector's office uh, not to uh, get on and investigate the the maladministration, which is apparent in the in the number of matters that have gone awry along the way. So the deputy would then be the one doing the investigations. I- Yes, either the deputy or one of the uh, um, the other uh, senior members, if the deputy feels conflicted, will, will lead that investigation. And basically, to compare modus operandi of Tulimad on Sailor's leadership with the modus operandi of the current leadership, I suspect with an unfavorable outcome and uh, remedial action in the form of reverting to doing things the way that Tuli used to do them. Now, you also mentioned that there are five fires at the moment that are burning under the bum of uh, uh, the public protector. Just take us through those five. Yeah, well, look, the, 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 the ones that have been in circulation for some time are the um, investigation or the, the pending inquiry by the Justice Committee in Parliament, which is going to sit on the 3rd of September, uh, the deputy president has that, that. Sorry, that inquiry is about her impeachment or what the constitution calls her removal from office. The uh, um, deputy president could suspend her while that investigation is pending. Uh, the third prong on the fork is the criminal case. The fourth is the disciplinary proceedings. Um, uh, for her striking off the role of advocates and 
The fifth is the investigation by her office into her maladministration. This week it came to light how much taxpayers are coughing up to keep SA Express flights in the air. Every passenger on every single SA Express flight is subsidized by about 3,850 rand a flight. A victim of what has been termed illegal predatory pricing to undermine private airlines is ChemAir, who are competition for SA Express. ChemAir founder Mars van der Moenen explained to Alec Hogg how he has been repeatedly grounded. It came in a couple of waves. It started as we got into sort of the 50 to 100 seating class aircraft. We found that the headwinds got stronger and stronger. And uh, the time to get any documentation processed became more and more extended. February last year, we had a short grounding that we, uh, at that point, we, we, we chose to, to try and take the, the just do whatever they need you to do approach and uh, and resolved it. However, it became clear that uh, that wasn't going to be the end of it. We had a further grounding in, in December for a new cause that was overturned um, by the, the urgent court on, on an interdict basis. Then uh, in, in early January, we had yet another grounding on for yet another cause, um, which was subsequently overturned by the Department of Transport uh, Civil Aviation Appeal Committee. That doesn't really help you because although it's been overturned, it hasn't been that easy to get back in the air. It hasn't. So the judgment came out on the 29th of April, and as we as we have this conversation, we still aren't operational again. The reason being, during the length of the appeal process, the certificate um, in the ordinary course uh, passage of time expired, um, and now we are trying to get the renewal process, and we're finding that uh, frustrating. There's no actual issue that anybody can point at. That's just provide further documentation, provide further documentation. Um, we're looking at it three weeks later, you get a response. That kind of approach has been very frustrating. Miles, how many aircraft does Kemir own? Um, we had a mixture between uh, own fleet and the lease fleet. I think we were at uh, 23 by the time of the grounding. 23 um, on the ground. But what happens now when you can't fly? Uh, some of those aircraft we moved to to foreign registers. We have um, again a large portion of our, our income. In fact, the largest portion of our income was from foreign operations. Um, so uh, at the time of the grounding, we were probably in in eight or nine different African countries for for various organisations, including um, uh, larger resource companies, United Nations. So uh, a, a lot of people were inconvenienced by their grounding and have nothing, no connection at all to South Africa. And uh, in some cases, we were able to move those aircraft to our existing customers, so they um, operated as, as, a, as a local aeroplane instead of as a South African aeroplane. And in many cases, the aeroplanes were, were, were stranded, and it took us some months in order to be able to, to, to move them to even to an airport of safety in some cases. So in South Africa, you decided to to, to fly to the smaller centres, uh, Plettenberg Bay, uh, Margate, uh, Hoodstrate, etc. Also true. flying to those centres, or many of them, is SA Express. And we, we had a, a report this week from the Free Market Foundation which researched SA Express and discovered that every seat uh, was costing the taxpayer an almost 4,000 rand. Now, these are huge numbers, and uh, given that they were competing directly with you, you must have some pretty strong thoughts on what's going on there. 
Absolutely. In fact, you know, as I said, our headwind started really when we started getting into the seating class um, of of the likes of, of SA Express. In fact, we operate very similar um, equipment types to that that um, that entity. And uh, our initial, the, the first route we competed directly against SA Express on was Bloemfontein, where we started, I guess, around about three years ago. And the the approach of the entity when a new entrant came into the market was shocking, honestly. In what way? Well, they immediately entered into a price war. Literally, the, the day we started, they dropped their fares by, I would guess, 40%. But surely that's predatory pricing, given that they've been subsidized by government by about one and a half billion rand in the past year, we believe. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you go back further in their history, they've had, um, they haven't produced financials since 2016. The four sets of financials before that, um, contained a material um, qualification, and even so, showed a, a loss over the of the, the, the entire period, with substantial amount of money. So it's a, it's an entity that has has not for for a long time contributed financially to the fiscus at all. So and and one of the reasons why we started looking at the routes operated by SA Express is their operational record was weak. They had on-time performance issues, customer satisfaction issues, and uh, therefore they were the logical airline to compete against because we could demonstrate a service alternative that was that would add value to customers. And after all that heat, it's time to cool down. How about some ice cream? If you are in Kuzula Natal, you may have come across Scoop, a business started in the kitchen of British-born Amanda Maidman, who seems to have found the perfect recipe of local-grown produce and ice cream and local workers who have come through a brilliant program called Work for a Living. Her lychee sorbet is legendary, and she's come up with a couple of rare flavors. We looked at possibly doing a cocktail bar or a restaurant because that's my background but I was a little bit nervous about the investment that would be needed and whether there'd be enough bums on seats and so I'd made ice cream at home for a few years people had loved it and so decided to start Scoop. We started in my kitchen in 2014 at home with the help of a domestic helper and um, I really wanted to celebrate the local KZN produce um, which I didn't think anybody was doing, especially with ice cream. You know, beautiful mangoes, macadamia nuts, pineapples. Um, we've got some beautiful citrus fruits, um, ginger. I kind of took the model of the gastro pubs, which I'd worked in um, during the early 2000s, which is um, locally sourced ingredients, seasonal, um, changing menus as often as you possibly can, um, and tried to put that into the scoop menu which worked really well. We've done, um, I'm quite good friends with Erica Platter, who's a local author, very good food writer, and she asked me for ages to make a curry leaf ice cream. And um, and we took the curry leaves and we steeped them in our milk and cream for a few hours and took out all the flavour that we could from the curry leaves and um, turned that into beautiful ice cream. We do a cardamom. Uh, I've got a flavor called Indian summer and then we've done some other um, weird and wonderful things we've got a really popular butter salted popcorn ice cream we also put pieces of the popcorn in salted praline as well and chop that up and mix it through once it's churned and we make our own ice cream cones 500 a week I think at the moment by hand so we make the make the mix ourselves and then um, put them in a in an iron and then roll them by hand afterwards so I really wanted to keep the 
as many of the systems manual as possible. I've got a real love for the South African people. We've sort of handpicked a team of, of people, a lot of them were disadvantaged. And so I stumbled across this wonderful work for a living program, which teaches uh, people over a two-week period job readiness skills. It costs them 100 rand, which doesn't seem very much to you and I, but to somebody that's not working and doesn't have an income, the 100 rand is a huge commitment, as well as getting themselves in a taxi to the course every day. Um, and I realized that people that were willing to make that sacrifice for themselves were the type of people that I wanted in my business. So we've recruited through that course only. I've now got 16 staff. Every single one of them has been through that course. Well, tell us some about the people who work for you. I've, I've read up about one was a car guard. Over the years, I've kind of got friendly with a few car guards, you know, going in and out of Woolworths, checkers, whatever. And um, one guy um, was working as a car guard. I'd picked him up before and taken him to work a few times. And he just approached me one day and said the centre that he was working in was closing down and um, he's Congolese, actually. And would I let him know if I heard of any jobs? And I gave him my number and said to him, put yourself through the Work for a Living programmes. I could see he was extremely committed to the course, which to me was a, and the, the first really endearing thing about him. He paid an extra 300 rand to put himself through another course, which taught him about computer skills and so on and so forth. And um, and I offered him a part-time job and said, I can't afford to take you on full-time at the moment, but come and work with us part-time. He came and did a few Saturdays and Sundays with us. Um, and eventually I was able to offer him something full-time. And he ended up opening my my new store two years ago um, at Bleto Lifestyle Centre. Did a fantastic job. Um, and after about six months, he came to me and said, listen, I'm a bit, I'm a bit bored. Is there anything else I can do? So I promoted him. He now runs my factory and um, is my assistant. And his brother-in-law went on to take over the Lifestyle Centre and they are, I call them my left and my right arm. So what is next for Scoop? So I've done it uh, for five years on my own. I think the next logical step is probably to look at taking a partner. So my vision was always not just to have two Scoops. It was, you know, I think we could probably do ten here. And so I think the next logical step is probably to to get a partner involved or possibly look at franchising. And that was Nutshell. The full version of the interviews can be found on the Biz News website. Speak to you again next week.